We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey everybody, it's T with the UFOs Want to Tell You Something. So today we're going to go over the elk abduction of 1999 in Washington State. We're going to go over Polly's story in Dr. Carla Turner's book, Taken. And I'll see where we go from there. We might find some more interesting stuff. Alright, let's get it. Polly first contacted Dr. Carla Turner in late 1992 before she finished Into the Fringe. The story of Dr. Carla Turner and her family's abductions. I am on page 176, and I had to stop to write you, wrote Polly. A passage discussing alien interest in human sexuality had struck a chord that resonated with some of her possible experiences. The town was small that Polly lived in. As a result, Polly stated she could not find a support group due to the local UFO groups in the small town had no women. As a result, Polly asked Dr. Carla Turner to put her in touch with other female abductees for mutual beneficial correspondence. This was due to the intimate and sensitive nature of her experiences. I have been involved with the UFO phenomena apparently all my life, and my children also are or have been involved, she wrote to Dr. Carla Turner. My father also has experiences, but he is very careful to whom he talks to about them, as he is a respected technical person and is active still in the mar a military organization. Polly stated she needed a female abductee buddy. Because of the sexual nature of the experiences she had to endure. I have all my life been seriously traumatized with symptoms of a victim of long-term incest, she wrote to Dr. Carla Turner, noting that her obsession with fantasies of strange sexual abuse involving unfamiliar intrusive instruments. This began at the age of four years old. This had, in fact, deeply affected Polly in her adult life. You stopped me short with your discussion on alien instigated sexual obsessions. I have since my teen years found myself every few years in a totally irrational sexually obsessed relationship characterized by some intelligences talking to me in my mind, directing my actions and setting up bizarre coincidences to stage interactions. Holly noted, Her personal relationships had not been obsessive, but having learned from my experience that she could be externally manipulated in her sexual activities, she no longer sought out such involvements. Now I simply stay out of all relationships of a sexual nature, stated Polly. The sexual and psychic energy in the last relationship was intense to the point of being ridiculous, totally directed, and involved frequent telepathy and transference of feelings. I'm in counseling for childhood incest, but there is only so far I can go with it, because I don't have a human incest background. In this letter to Dr. Carla Turner, she listed several UFO sightings as well as alien encounters in her family's experiences, most of which Dr. Carla Turner was familiar with from her own research with abductees. This list included interactions with elves, a creature that seemed to slosh through physical objects as if they were in water, unusual zigzagging lights, lights that appeared outside her window every night at the same time for several hours at a time that seemed to be watching her, meandering poltergeist activity and many, many 
vivid abduction dreams. I make no claim for them, wrote Polly, but I know how they felt. A sense since young childhood that something was in my head to keep track of me. A squealing sound, sort of, in my head which seems associated with contact and bedroom visitations, which my dog, my son, and I all saw. Polly had merely listed these events. But as a researcher, I was interested in the details, said Dr. Carla Turner. I was also interested in the person who was trying to cope with this phenomena, said Dr. Carla Turner. Dr. Turner responded to Polly's letters by stating she would be a good listener to Polly, but also was a woman and an abductee. Now this was just the type of friend that Polly was looking for. Dr. Carla Turner went on to say, Although I had no recollection of sexually oriented encounters myself, I had learned much from others who had been through these events. And my husband Elton, whose full account is related in Into the Fringe, had himself experienced a sexual scenario with what appeared to be a hybrid alien female when he was a very young teen. Such events, I knew, were real in terms of their sensations and after-effects. And any understanding of these scenarios would shed an important light on the overall alien abduction agenda. Dr. Carla Turner explained these two concerns when answering Polly's letter. And Polly agreed to share her info with Dr. Carla Turner as a part of an ongoing research of the time. Dr. Carla Turner and Polly shared letters, phone calls, and discussions that were taped. And Dr. Carla Turner learned much about Polly and her children's experiences. She describes Polly as a tall, fair, striking woman in her mid-forties. Her ethnic background is European, primarily Celtic and Scandinavian. Polly was an excellent artist. But to support her family, Polly worked rather physical jobs. She was born in 1946 in New Jersey and grew up on the southeast. She is widowed and lives with her children. And whilst her and her family had many UFO sightings in the area, it became clear that Polly's son, Sam, had been having alien encounters in some of his taped communications and drawings and reports to Polly. Polly then gave those reports to Dr. Carla Turner, and it was evident. Sam showed unusual maturity and insight from an age of 11 years old, said Dr. Carla Turner. Everything told to Dr. Carla Turner came from conscious recollections, in which concerning any given event were very incomplete. Polly regulated some of her experiences to the vivid dream category, a common response for many abductees, said Dr. Carla Turner. The statement, I make no claim for them, means that she could not objectively verify these events as part of usual reality, said Dr. Carla Turner. Some of them are similar to virtual reality scenario dreams, and some seem to have been simply the surfacing memories of actual events. And if they occurred strictly within the mental or psychic framework, they still gave her semblance of reality. The nature of that reality was often ambiguous, however, but there were some experiences she had verified as real because they had multiple witnesses or perceived, while she herself to be a conscious state of mind. These memories began for Polly early on in Polly's childhood. When I was four, I saw a skinny being who appeared in silhouette against the window shade. It was night, but a bright light, perhaps orangish in color, shone 
from the other side of the shade. The room was dark except for the illumination outside the shaded window. The being turned to approach me. When I get to this point in the memory, I start shaking my head and saying, No, no. And then the memory stops. I tell myself, if the memory comes over me again, I will get beyond this point and find out what happens next, but I never do. As Dr. Carla Turner points out, probably not coincidentally at which she began to have sexual fantasies of intrusive instruments used on her additionally, she reported. About age four, I had the sense of something having been put behind my left ear. The next possible event for Polly related to an alien activity occurred around the age of 14. The onset of an obsession with the understanding the working of the universe, Polly explained. It was like I awakened to a sense of cosmic mission and to an apocalyptic sort of sense of human destiny, said Polly. I felt I must understand the universe. It becomes a constant undercurrent of striving, which persists even now. Dr. Carla Turner goes on to state, Given the reports of other abductees, it was interesting that she related this job and task on Earth to Armageddon. When Polly was in her late 20s and lived in a different location, the next events took place. Outside the cabin of Blue Ridge Mountains, very loud stomping like several men in work boots suddenly began on the front porch. After no sound of approach, said Polly, we saw shadowy figures accompanying very loud stomping. I don't remember it stopping, related Polly as she recalled the stomping outside. I recollect we went to sleep in the midst of the commotion, which of course makes no sense. If we were lying only a few yards from prowlers, said Pe Polly. We awoke in the morning, remembered the stomping and the shadowy figures, and we went outside to hunt for footprints, but found none. But Dr. Carla Turner states that in 1987, however, Polly got a good look at her mysterious enigmatic intruders. While sick in bed, I had a couple bedroom visitations by two black-robed figures. They had large, slanted, glowing, lemon-yellow eyes with no pupils, just like lights. The black-robed figures were about four foot tall. They were identical, except the one was a little lighter, like charcoal gray instead of black. When they moved, they did everything simultaneously to each other. They glided through my son's toy box when they left the lower parts of their robes, just went right through it. Polly noted that this event occurred before she had ever seen the cover of Communion, or any representation of your typical alien gray in pop culture. Polly states, someone asked me if I had asked the figures what they wanted. My response was no. I didn't want to give them any openers. My feeling was they had come to take me permanently, and I devoted all of my energy to rebuking them. In 1987, a very odd, unusual series of events commenced. The whole thing started with a dream. I dreamed I was flying over the Atlantic toward the Mediterranean, said Polly. A white plane with red markings, shaped like a small concorde, was approaching me from the opposite direction, the east. Shortly after this dream, I noticed that I was having conversations in my head in French. This was most apt to happen around 4 p.m. My communicator identified himself as a professor in a Russian university. Polly described that at night, he would privately beam out psychic messages toward the West in an effort to expose a situation of psychic warfare, which this professor claimed to be between political powers worldwide, and he was attempting to bring peace between the West and the USSR. 
He told Polly warfare was now being waged, directed to influence people in high positions and others who could serve the purpose of the proprietors, perhaps obscure people who could no nevertheless influence the events and public opinion. Polly's last communication with Evick the Professor occurred in December of 1987 as she drove her son through a snowstorm from another town. These driving conditions took all of Polly's concentration, so needless to say when she heard French communication start, she was extremely startled. Evick was saying that he wanted Polly to join him in prayer for world peace. Polly states that she tried to pray in French, but it was an utter disaster. I don't remember whose idea it was, but we decided to pray in Latin, and that went much better. I was saying things from the Mass in Latin, clearly seeing the snowy surroundings and driving complacently, but just as clearly I began to see, like a parallel vision, the inside of a probable Russian Orthodox Cathedral. This was a priest in a dark red robe, some kind of tall, funny hat. Polly goes on to describe the cathedral's interior was not ornate, but the ceiling was high, and there was a lot of rich, polished wood. There was a choir consisting of both men and women. I wish I had a tape recorder in my head. The choir was singing the most magnificent mass I have ever heard. I could clearly distinguish that it was sometimes in eight-part harmony. It was all in Latin, and it was definitely not any mass I have sung or heard. This went on a long time. The whole rest of the ride, I don't recollect the ending, said Polly, but we did arrive to our destination. This was the last time she heard from Evick. I had the feeling we had accomplished all we could together. He had not been seeking me, just broadcasting. He was sending in general. And I happened to pick him up, Polly said. These two events that occurred in 1987, Polly's odd telepathic messages with Evick, and her dark-clad entities who visited her, just the onset of an alien and UFO-related activity in her family's life. It seemed to focus on Polly and her youngest son, Sam. A few months after communication Polly had with Evick, her son, Sam, had an encounter that seemed to parallel Polly's experience with the black-robed entities. At the age of six, he saw black-clad flying figures in the room. While they were similar to Polly's black-clad visitors, there were a few odd details that were different describing the entities as having red eyes and being smoke-like. They told the boy, Come with us, and we'll take you to a better place. But Sam wasn't convinced of their good intentions, and even though he was quite young, he refused the offer. No way, he told the entities. After Sam's incident, both he and Polly had a number of of experiences involving UFO sightings, mainly witnessed from a nearby hill and a series of vivid dream events that indicated repeated alien encounters. We've seen many UFOs with colored lights around them or shooting from out of them. She goes on further to state that it was common to see white central lights flash amber, red, and blue. This was the onset of several experiences with what Polly and her family referred to as the elves. These beings would, as Polly put it, squawk talk very loud at night 
and were extremely frightening to another of her children, who also witnessed some of this activity during the most intense period of the activity in 1989 and 1990. Around this time in September of 1989, Polly's family would have an experience with a different sort of entity. They perceived this creature sloshing through solid matter, moving through physical objects as if it were water. In spite of no clear confrontation with this being, Polly felt that it was reptilian, huge and loud, making crushing sounds in the woods, like some very large two-legged creature lumbering through the woods in a very wet area. This sound had no approach and no departure, said Polly, but there was a definite sense that the proprietor of all the noises was approaching them. This occurred on a night which included a lot of UFO activity. We witnessed UFOs apparently pursued by fighter reconnaissance at the airbase. So let's go into the breakdown of Paulie's case thus far. Now at first, I didn't really know what to make of her case. You see, the whole incest comment really stuck out to me. Because we've talked about this before in prior podcasts, with the psychological aspect of things. If you recall, I spoke about cover memories and a story by Sigmund Freud where the little girl had been raped by either her uncle or her father. I'm still a little shaky on that. And she reported seeing a rat man, and only until he started digging into it did he realize it was either the father or the uncle that had done it. But there was a cover memory of a rat man. Now at first, this was my initial reaction with her. It sounded very odd, it sounded very similar to that. And I say that because she talks about going to a therapist for incest, but she's never had that in her life. I find that odd. I'm not saying she's making shit up, I just find that part really odd. And as we went further into it, you see that she, after contact with these entities, was demonstrating telepathic capabilities in the sense of picking up what Evik the Russian was putting out, right? That was also weird to me. I really don't know what to make of it. Theoretically, if you're having abduction since a child on, like most people do, you're going to be able to speak telepathically as these beings do. And if they happen frequently enough, perhaps even be able to perceive that at other points in time. But that being said, there was another part of this story that stood out to me in that case too. It was very snowy, and she had to concentrate really hard. It's almost as if she was putting herself in another place, psychologically speaking. I could be way off base on this, but that's what stood out to me, because she doesn't remember when it ended, but she does remember the destination home. Now that being said, and putting all skeptical notes aside, she does seem to have experienced something. And what I mean by that is, it fits in with your typical alien abduction to a certain degree. We note the statement about feeling the importance of, in some odd way, right? She feels important, like she has a mission, a cosmic mission. That's commonly reported in abductions. And then we see again the warnings of, as Dr. Carla Turner put it, Armageddon. So more of those warnings of devastations that we've been going over. 
those two really stand out. As in, she may indeed be an abductee. Now another interesting note is the black clad entities that seem to keep popping up in some of our stories that we've been going over. Now I'm aware of this and I keep picking them on purpose. Well, at least the mantis one, right? Because remember, like I said, the mantis sticks out to me. Or insectoid. Again, we gotta change the names, but that sticks out to me. But again, we still keep seeing these cloaks everywhere. Question is, why they wear fashion sense? Some other reason? If it's for concealing yourself, you're not really doing a good job of it. Okay, you can still see a fucking seven foot tall bug, eight foot tall insect, you know, in the case of the mantid, or a little short gray. We still know what your face looks like. You're not concealing much. So it's odd. But she also talks about them having lemon yellow eyes, which is weird. And her son talks about them having red eyes and being smoke-like. This is weird in itself. And as I started going through this... I started feeling more poltergeisty from it, rather than alien abductee. Because this isn't your typical alien abduction scenario. In fact, in her case, they seem to have just stopped and stared at her for a while. In her son's case, they were trying to take the boy. And with his description, it sounds, again, more poltergeisty than it does aliens. Now, she states her father also has experiences, as well as her and her son. But the question that stood out to me, because this runs in family lines, why is it only the one son, and not all of her children? Now, granted, her other child did perceive the noises of these elves, quote-unquote. Why is the other son, Sam, the only one having these experiences? It raises a big question mark in my mind. And we have one more thing that also stood out to me, and that was this perceived reptilian sloshing through solid objects as if going through water. She perceived that without confrontation. In other words, what I took from that is she felt as if it was reptilian without actually seeing the being. Now, my interpretation of that could be wrong. But if that is the case, then the question comes about, how do you know it was a reptilian? Because you guys know my stance on reptilians. I don't buy that. I do a lot of astrobiological research, and quite frankly, that wouldn't fit into what happens to our bodies in space, you know, if you took that and amplified it by another species. Now, we also know that, again, I don't like the reptilian thing or the Nordic thing, because why would they look exactly like us? They wouldn't. Reptilian case, why would they look exactly like dinosaurs or lizards from this planet? They wouldn't. There would be odd little differences. And quite frankly, the only really odd difference between a dinosaur and reptilian is their humanoid looking. With the other entities you find some of the effects that happen to our bodies in space actually apply to them in the sense of what appears to be bone density loss and muscle loss. Right? They're very skinny. That's just a couple examples. I mean it's not in-depth 
I'm actually working on a little bit of a presentation on that. But just as a little side note. Now that could also come down to the altered perception thing. But again, I want to make that point. So what do I make of the overall case that we've gone over so far? I find it odd. I'm a little skeptical of some of it. But I could still buy it. I trust Dr. Carla Turner's work very much so. So as we go through, we're going to find out if it gets a little better in the sense of how much more skeptical we can be about it. Because there are certain things that stand out that really don't point to more UFO phenomena. In fact, to run down the list here, you've got intrusive aliens going after her at the age of four. Okay, that's alien. Black clad entities? Well, in this case, with her, we're going to call that alien. With her son, not so much. Seeing UFOs, aliens. That's three so far. Other than that, so far it feels a little more poltergeisty. And we do also have the memory of seeing an alien at her window with the light shining through, right? Now that makes some sense. That's alien. So that would be four. Now we also have the odd entities stomping in front of her house and seeing their silhouettes. I would have liked to know how tall they were. Now the fact that she just kind of ignored it and went back to sleep, that's typical with most abductions too. So that part also kind of fits into the alien abduction scenario. So we got about five, I think. But there is another thing that I do wonder. She had an experience at the age of four, and then her next recalled one was at 14. That's not typical. So, don't get me wrong, I'm not being skeptical about this. I'm saying, because all of this was consciously recalled. There was no hypnosis, none of that stuff. I think there might be some incidents in between there. But as we go further along in the book, we'll see where we come from with Polly. I think that perhaps some of this was misperceived. Or is... We're just going to quote the Turner thesis in this. That perhaps some of this is altered perception to a certain degree. Or even in some cases, as I pointed out earlier, this could be psychological. But again, as we go through this story, we're going to find out a little bit more. On a cold day, February 25th. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. 1999, an extremely odd and unique event took place. Changing the lives of some of those involved in the incident forever. In the Cascade Mountains near... Mount St. Helens. It was a cold Thursday morning, and 14 forestry workers were planting trees. Three of the 14 men were watching a herd of elk in the chilly valley below all morning long. As the men went to go take their lunch break from the grueling day of work they had been doing all day, as the forestry workers headed to go take their lunch, Still watching the majestic elk in the valley below, a strange event then took place. Francisco and Augustine were nearly at the turnout at 1,900 feet elevation. Manuel and two other men 
about 1,600 feet elevation from an old overgrown access road, while the rest of the forestry workers were scattered almost midway between the two groups on the north-facing hillside. While Francisco stopped momentarily to rest and watch the elk once more, on the northeast of them an odd object was spotted. The UFO presumably dropped 70 feet down to the height of the Douglas fir trees by a nearby dirt road drifting over a hilltop, hugging the contour of the hillside, skimming the clear-cut brush top level. The odd object was wedge-shaped, like the heel of a boot, with a strip of white and a strip of red atop the object. It slowly made its way towards the herd of elk. The object's location was 800 yards distance and about 200 feet lower in elevation than Francisco's location at this point. At first glance, Francisco mistook the object as a landing bicolored paraglider. The object seemed to be silent and had an odd slow wobble. Francisco quickly realized he was not seeing a parachute of any kind. As the object silently moved towards the herd of elk, it remained close to the ground as in stealth mode. As the elk became aware of the object, they all bolted. While most of the elk ran up the slope to the east, but the going was slow as one quote says, one elk in particular separated and headed north from the herd. The UFO moved up on the lone elk on the north and moved in. Francisco, baffled at what he was seeing, shouted to Augustine, Look at that! Look at that! The clear-cut terrain prevented any rapid movement for the animals. Due to the tree trunks cut above about 18 inches tall, transforming their trunks into small 18-inch sharp stakes facing the sky. There were also trunks, bristling branches, and they all lay helter-skelter, causing almost a barricade for the elks. And needless to say, the one lone elk was in essence screwed. The craft still wobbling moved in on the lone elk, moving only between five to seven miles per hour, and easily grabbed the unsuspecting beast. Augustine at this point had missed the pursuit of the elk, but did watch the UFO take the elk. Manuel, the crew supervisor, also noticed this capture only 500 yards distance as he was down slope. All the other 11 men were focused on a herd of elk as they were fleeing. The UFO had picked up the elk by moving directly over it and slowly lifting the animal with no visible means which was evident to the observers. But the animal ceased discernible movement once grabbed. No kicking legs, no struggling of the body, nor indication that this ilk had even been conscious anymore. Amazed, the witnesses saw this craft pick up a 500-pound elk with ease. The wingspan of the UFO ranged not much more than the length of the elk, about 7 to 8 feet. The head of the elk was against the surface of the bottom of the UFO with the body was just upright and stiff and was lifted just enough to clear the underbrush. The craft continued its slow wobbling motion and the elk moved likewise with the craft as if it were welded to the craft like a metal sculpture. As the craft moved away with its acquired target it slowly moved to the north, following the contour of the land. Whilst leaving with the elk, the feet were observed sweeping circles in conjunction with the oscillation of the craft. Shortly, the craft approached the edge, and this was defined by a clear-cut area. Apparently, the craft did not avoid some of the lower branches of a tree. Now due to the distance of the craft from them, 
The men did not know the craft hit the top of the trees or if it was the elk. After it or the elk hit, they saw the object dip sharply in reverse direction before ascending vertically in front of the tree line. All three men had the impression that the craft had almost dropped the animal. Once above the treetop level, it moved over the forest margin and continued northward. Then it dipped out of sight momentarily, then ascended at a roughly 45 degree angle into the distance until obscured by clouds. But the rest of the herd of elk were gathered in a tight huddle near the tree line, a normal behavior when a threat of predators is perceived. This lasted two hours. Now let's go over the preliminary investigation. So this happened in March, right after the event. It's 1999, and two initial investigators go to check it out. That's Peter Davenport, director of the National UFO Reporting Center at the time, or Newfork. And Robert Fairfax, he is a MUFON investigator for the Mutual UFO Network, that's what MUFON stands for, for those of you who don't know. So they go out to the initial site and they're contemplating the event with a guy named Jack. This is the landowner's representative, recounting the details secondhand. And the details weren't exactly correct, because, of course, they were secondhand. And they found this out much later. Now, they couldn't talk to the witnesses that day due to the fact that there was 10 inches of snow, so they couldn't plant any seedling trees. So they weren't there. They were given the day off. Now, swiftly, the two investigators, they set up an interview with the three men through their employer and spoke with them that afternoon. Now, this wasn't very conducive of obtaining accurate details because the men didn't speak very good English and their interpreter was a man named Emmanuel, who was their boss. They all met and they met in an abandoned parking lot with a lot of traffic behind them, so there's a downfall right there as well. So all seven men stood around a tailgate and conducting interviews was, you know, they had to do it as a group because they couldn't do it one-on-one -on -one due to the crappy situation as well as not having an interpreter other than their boss. So one-on-one -on -one was kind of off the board. Now they knew this wasn't the norm, but it's kind of what they had to do to get the story or initially get it. Now the two investigators, they scrutinized the group dynamics. Each of them held their own personal version, the witnesses. And they were aware that the group had discussed this extensively, as you would. Now Emmanuel, he tried, again, to be a good interpreter, but he wasn't really the best and he seemed reserved in his translation due to not being present at, or present at the abduction, rather. He believed something odd had happened to his workers. However, he was very skeptical of a, an alien craft being abducted by an elk. This seemed a little much, and I understand that. I think most of us would. And while there were more questions to be asked at the time, it was getting late and the signals via body language suggest that they cut the interview short and go. Now while they tried to set up another interview, they were told the men would be too busy planting trees in the forest, you know, doing their forestry work, which is understandable. But this left the two investigators with a tentative and skeletal view of the story. Now they did a report for the MUFON Journal 
and later had to amend it after getting the information. They had waited 57 days, all the time knowing that our minds dull over time so the witness accounts would not be as sharp as they were in a short time frame afterward. But a plus came out of it. You see, they found a good interpreter through MUFON. And please excuse me on the name because I know I'm going to fuck it up. Ruben Uriarte of Northern California. We're just going to call him Ruben. So then we go into the follow-up investigation, right? So Ruben called Emmanuel and got the witnesses' numbers. And he arranged a meeting with the witnesses at their home. Or rather, at the home of one of the witnesses. They all decided to meet in a group. Now, they had a group of family member and friends at the time that were over at the house, so it was a little awkward for them at first. And some of the men didn't think that they really wanted to be interviewed at that time. I assume because they felt a little awkward with everybody kind of staring at them and trying to figure out the story themselves. But Reuben was a very good talker and he talked them into doing the interviews and they interviewed the men separately and as a group this gave them a very conclusive story to go off of and later that afternoon all seven of the men investigators and witnesses went to the location and there the picture became more clear and that's when they had to amend their MUFON journal report from the initial story they had gotten. Now here we find out some very interesting things. The ones who initially witnessed the craft were in fear at the time, right? So right after lunch that day, they were afraid. It was also found that the elk were in fear, understandably so, as we went over before, where they stayed very close together and what they do when predators are around or just done what they do. Now, several others who did not see the craft, however, were skeptical, but still felt uncomfortable and still wanted to stay in a group. They knew that something had happened, they just didn't know what. But a couple others would make fun of Francisco in writing it off. Now, interestingly, most of the men have developed an interest in UFOs. A few are nervous about working in that area still. I do find that interesting. So I guess we're going to go into our breakdown on this too instead of putting it in a separate little section. Now, there were a couple contradictions on the size of the craft, right? And one quote I have here is, The increase in size from attributed to the craft in the earlier report seems to have been an illusion caused by the change of the craft's angle and tilt, the terrain at the point of capture. Well, that's interesting. But it still stays pretty consistent, right? About the size of the elk. So seven to eight foot. And then there were some saying the length was about seven foot by five foot. Now, there's another issue, which is them not getting back to them before a 57-day period. That's a little odd, but again, they are working, so I can buy that. And then the language barrier at first is kind of an issue as well. But they seem to have solved that issue. An interesting case, nonetheless. It is unique in its own. While I find these things odd, I can still buy into it. Now, it is weird 
Now, theoretically, they would take not just humans, but also animals as well. So I guess I could buy that. All in all, this case is unique in its own. Which is why I wanted to throw it out there. You see, I like to find the more obscure stuff as well, so... While most people with a alien abduction podcast aren't going to go over weird things like this, it is nonetheless an abduction. I'm open to it all. Alright, so what we're going to do is we're going to go over... Forbidden Questions, A Guide to Human E.T. Contact by Gwen Farrell. Now, it's hard to find this book. At least it was when I first initially put it in my Amazon cart. I got this about two years ago, and by the time I was ready to buy it, because I think at the time it was like 30 bucks, I'm, I'm pretty penny-pinchy with my books. But I wanted to buy it, and next thing I know, it's out of print. It is sold out. Now eventually she re-released it. And I got a copy. You probably can still find some. I'll link it on my Facebook. But what we're going to cover is are you an abductee? So I'm going to go over some of the questions in here. And you just answer them to yourselves. Have you experienced missing time? A period of time you can't account for? So, again, this is when you're driving down the road, it's 6 o'clock, bam, it's 7.05, or 7 o'clock, and you're two miles down the road, right? An hour went by, you just kind of went black for a second, you don't know what the hell's going on. Missing time. Now, I can venture anywhere from 30 minutes to much longer, hours. I've even heard a couple accounts of days. Not too commonly reported, but usually it's a couple hours or so, or even in it. After a suspected contact event, have you found marks on your body that have no rational cause? Okay, so going off of this, we're talking scoop marks on your leg, where it looks like somebody took a tiny melon ball or to your leg, weird cuts on your body, bruises that come out of nowhere, your sleep one, you know, go to sleep and then all of a sudden you wake up with some fingerprints on your body. That's happened. That kind of thing. Have you ever found foreign objects anywhere in your body that didn't get there by normal, explainable means? So now we're going into alien implants. Now I'll refer back to Terry Lovelace again. He would go jogging. And as he did this, he found eventually that his leg would go numb. And he didn't know why until he went to the doctors and they found an object in his leg. Dr. Roger Lear did a lot of work with alien implants. Again, there's some videos online you can look up to find him actually working on one person in particular. We've touched on this before, where the object actually moves in the person's body as he's trying to grab it. There's weird things like that. Even Whitley Strieber reportedly has one behind his ear, which is commonly reported, and it flares up and turns red at times. Have you found wounds on your body? Or have experienced unexpected bleeding from natural body openings or unexplainable pain in body cavities? That one kind of speaks for itself. I really don't think I need to touch on it very much. So this one's for females. Have you ever unexpectedly become pregnant or experienced anything unusual relating to a pregnancy? So this is like the ghost fetus phenomena, for example. Eh, a little different than that. This is where a woman becomes pregnant, even at times without having sex. She carries the baby through most of the term and then you know, they get ultrasounds and that stuff. Prove the baby's there. And then later in the term, the fetus just disappears. And usually, 
the woman will recollect this, sometimes have a vivid dream or just full conscious memory of these entities coming down and grabbing her and taking the fetus. That's very commonly reported. Have members of your family had contact experience? So as we know, alien abductions run in bloodlines, right? That's one of the reasons I know I've never been abducted, is because my family doesn't report that. Now, that's one of the things, again, that I find weird about Polly's story, is her father, her, and her son have that experience. But her other children don't, and I find that really weird. At least not so far in our story. Have you ever awakened with your clothing turned inside out? or backward, or found yourself wearing clothing that wasn't yours. Now this is reported sometimes. I don't think it's as common as it used to be. Where you're a grown man and you wake up wearing a Mickey Mouse t-shirt that makes you look like Winnie the Pooh. That's just kind of a funny example, but you know, it has been reported at times. Do you have frequent, vivid dreams about alien abduction or contact experiences? Now again, over what we've gone with Pat and Polly alone, that's very common, okay? They'll chalk it up to a vivid dream, when more than likely that's not the case. Because there's multiple witnesses and that kind of thing. And people don't generally share dreams, so let's all keep that in mind. Have you seen beings that did not look human in your bedroom or elsewhere, including public places? Now the public places thing, that has been reported from time to time, but that one's not too often. The other one's kind of a given. Do you have memories of being inside an extraterrestrial craft and interacting with occupants? Again, that one's kind of a given. Um, you're probably an abductee if you've had that happen. Do you have trouble falling asleep or sleeping through the night for unexplained reasons? Now this doesn't include insomnia. You're kind of afraid. I, you know, that's kind of common. I guess this one kind of speaks for itself as well. It's for an unexplained reason, not for the ones I just named off. Like you don't know why, but you, you're just a fucking afraid somebody's going to kick in your door. Which, actually, that's not really a good example either. Because that's a common thing people go through. I guess it's more of... If you've had these experiences... Do you think they're coming to get you kind of thing? Where you're sleepless and you just can't rest? That kind of thing. Do you feel fear and anxiety over the subject of UFOs and ETs? Now, this one... People either push away the subject of UFOs or they fucking become entrenched in it. So she should have kind of put it that way, because it seems to draw people in at times, right? We see that a lot, and it's very commonly reported. For example, we'll take Polly, okay? She was in the middle of reading Dr. Carla Turner's book when she reached out to her. She became entrenched in the subject. Or we can go off of Terry Lovelace. Or the many others who see the front cover of Communion and just flip the fuck out. Do you have a deep conviction that you are on Earth for a special purpose or mission, but you may not know what it is? Now again, just the two stories that we've covered thus far, with Polly and Pat, you see that. That is a fact that these people go through. And again, they've both reported that just in the two we've gone over. If I have to, I'll find more examples. 
Now that's the end of the questions from her list, but I feel like there's a few she should have thrown in. Now one of the ones I think she should have thrown in would be, do you have disaster dreams? Dreams of devastation. Because that's another very common one. Because these entities, when they abduct you, they will show you nuclear devastation and hurricanes, tornadoes, volcanoes, end of the world scenarios almost. To try to snap you out of quit fucking up kind of thing. That one's very commonly reported. In fact, I would say it's one of the most commonly reported things that happens during these experiences. Now, another thing she should have put in is what is your reaction to the cover-up communion? Now, as we just touched on, some people freak the hell out. But I remember listening to a podcast from Mike Cloland where he was discussing his abduction with Bud Hopkins. I think it was pre-hypnosis kind of thing. And one of the things that they spoke about was Mike Cloland disagreed with the cover of Whitley Strieber's Communion, the alien on the front. He said the head is more light bulb shaped. Now, as Bud Hopkins points out, that's an indicator in itself. Now, I've experienced that myself. Even though I'm not an abductee, before I knew that there was such a thing as them being stark fucking white, like paper white. When I would hear people talking about grays, I would totally jump on that and say, no, 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 they're white. Now again, I'm not an abductee. I'll chalk it off every damn time. I don't seem to fit any of these questions, as far as I can tell. And it doesn't run in my family. But I digress. The point of it is, if you see a stark difference, that's a pretty good indicator that you probably had an experience of your own. Now, that that's done, I want to do a little bit of a rant. I know you all love them. You must. So, I was posting my last podcast on a couple different groups on Facebook, an abductee group in general. And the admin on there is a very nice lady, and she tells me that people gave her shit because she saw an alien at her window. Well, here's a bit of a fact for you people. That, in fact, does happen. If you're going to make fun of a fucking lady for reporting that, her experience, you need to do a little fucking research, pick up a book, and try to prove her wrong. But as it turns out, you're not really going to, because it is commonly reported. And my heart goes out to that lady, because she's very nice. And I don't think it's right for anybody to just sit there and bag on some lady, even though they don't know what experiences she's had in her life. It happens a lot. Alien abductees see entities at their window, trying to get them. Or just watching them. A bit like the cover that I do for my logo. Even Whitley Strieber talked about one peeking around the fucking corner at him. Jordan Hofer talked about one peeking around the corner at him. There's things like that. That do happen to abductees. And I want you people to keep that in mind. Now there is another thing I want to touch on. And it's me going over my astrobiological stuff, right? And how I only stick with the two main beings, which is the greys and the insectoids. Which, again, please, let's come up with better names. Somebody come up with something better. 
The reason I stick with those two, again, is the effect of space on our bodies and how it seems to have happened to another species out there. Now again, I'm doing a presentation on that eventually. I'm working on it. I'll probably wind up doing that over Christmas break because I'm going to be taking a break. And then I'd like to present it at MUFON or something like that. I'm going to try to get more involved with MUFON and become an investigator and that kind of stuff. But the point is, I stick with those two main ones for that reason. Now there very well could be other entities, and theoretically there would be. But I stick with those main two for that specific reason. So if you get mad at me over the reptilian stuff, you better be understanding. If you get mad at me about the Nordic stuff, you better be understanding. Or any of the other odd entities that are sometimes reported. So I just wanted to clarify and give a little bit of a rant there. But answer those questions for yourself on whether you're an abductee. Now, I'm going to leave it here. Next week, we're going to pick up with Polly again. Possibly. Because I do have a couple people I owe interviews to. And I just so happened to fix my technical difficulties, thanks to my brother. So I'm going to try to get some of those lined up. So, Polly's story may wait a little bit. Possibly. I guess we'll just find out as we go. Alright guys, so I think we're going to end it here. I just want to thank you guys for listening. I want to give a big thanks to the Ghoulies for the badass intro and outro music. Follow them and subscribe to them on Facebook and YouTube. I want to thank you guys for listening. I want to say congratulations to Ryan Sprague of Somewhere in the Skies for the award that he got. And I gotta tell you, I want one of those eventually, so if you could please share my podcast and get it out there. If anybody interested in UFOs or abductions, that would be great. I want to thank you guys very much for listening and letting me get my research out there. So if you want to come on for an interview... Or just talk to me. It's the UFOs at Yahoo.com, no capitals, no spaces. Or you can find me on Facebook at the UFOs want to tell you something. So I just want to thank you guys for listening. I just want to say this is T, keep kicking it.